The word vipassana in Pali means to see clearly. Pasana means to see, and va means clearly, or specifically, or thoroughly. So the nature of our practice, the nature of vipassana, is to see things as they truly are, to see the true nature of experience. And as we practice and our minds become more clear and focused and concentrated, we begin to see certain characteristics of phenomena. We see the impermanence of things, the constant change. We see the unsatisfactoriness, the dukkha. We begin to understand what is perhaps the most difficult aspect to grasp, which is anatta, or selflessness. Impermanence is fairly obvious. You know, we see change on so many levels. And by now you've probably had a fair taste of dukkha. That should become increasingly obvious. Selflessness is quite subtle. This understanding of anatta because it's contrary to our most deeply conditioned patterns of viewing things. What masks the understanding of anatta, or selflessness, is the sense of solidity of objects. Because our minds cannot penetrate the apparent solidity of things, we become identified and attached to this idea of self. There are different kinds of solidity that mask the selflessness. One kind is solidity of continuity. That is, when our perception is not sufficiently refined, we see things as being continuous. For example, we hear a sound. And if we're not paying careful attention, we may experience it as a single sound, a single experience. When the mindfulness is sharp and focused, we see that that one sound is actually comprised of very many moments of hearing arising and vanishing very quickly, we begin to tune into the vibration of constant change. And so we go beyond this illusion of the solidity of the sound, the solidity of continuity. Same thing with movement. You know, when we're reaching or walking, in the beginning of our practice, we may have the idea that a step is one continual movement, the solidity of continuity. As the attention gets more focused, we perceive for ourselves, not as a theory or an abstraction, but in direct perception, that that movement is comprised of many, many, many changing sensations arising and vanishing continuously. 
So this solidity of continuity, that's one of the things that masks our understanding of selflessness. The other is called solidity of combination. That is, we tend to see things as a composite. And until our attention is developed, we see the unity of that composition and don't see the composite nature, the fact that the object is comprised of many different aspects or conditions. We can see it very clearly with the body, the solidity of combination. We have the sense that the body is some solid thing, some solid mass. But when we look more carefully, we begin to break up this illusion and see that it's comprised of many different kinds of particles and sensations. The same with our understanding of the mind. The solidity of combination means we have a sense that we have a mind. We may like it or not like it or whatever. But when we look carefully, we see there's not one mind. There's not just one thing happening there. It is a combination of many things constantly moving and changing. There is, in fact, no solidity there at all. And so in our understanding of anatta, or selflessness, we have to go beyond the illusion of solidity, solidity of continuity, of combination. This is very difficult to do because our conditioning and our training has been to see things in a certain way. And what supports this conventional way of seeing things is our attachment in the realm of concepts. We have certain very deeply conditioned concepts about things, and we become identified and attached to these concepts. And these concepts prevent us from seeing the illusion of solidity. They prevent us from seeing the inherent selflessness of phenomena. How do concepts do this? Concept of body. I have a body today, I have a body tomorrow, I had a body yesterday. We take that concept and we involved with that concept and we don't see that actually the body is a process of continually changing events because the concept remains the same. And so it reinforces that sense of solidity of continuity. <laughs> what we want to do in our practice as a way of understanding deeply for ourselves 
the truth of selflessness, of egolessness, is to drop from the level of concept to the level of direct experience. To begin to see how concepts have conditioned our minds. There are a few which are very predominant in our lives. And it's helpful to understand how they function for us. One of the most pervasive concepts we have is the concept of time, of past and future. We have created this idea of past and of future and have given it such reality that the concept very much dominates our lives. We carry the past around like a corpse whether it's the past of the last sitting, or the past of our last relationship, whether it's the past of our childhood. Because we have solidified so much, or identified so much with this concept of past, it conditions the way we actually experience things. What's extremely liberating and interesting to do is to examine very carefully exactly how this concept of past comes about. And what we discover is that the past is no more than a thought in the present moment. We're sitting, minding our own business, watching our breath, and these thoughts or memories or images come. And if we're not mindful of them as thoughts and memories and images in the present moment, we create a whole idea about them as being the past, and then somehow we throw it out behind us giving it a solidity, a reality, as if the past is back there and it's something real. But in the moment, in the actual moment that we're experiencing what we call past, what is it? It has no more weight than the weight of a thought. Thought does not weigh very much if we can simply let it arise and vanish. We do the same thing with the future. We're sitting or walking and these thoughts come of anticipation, of planning, of expectation, of anxiety, of fear, all kinds of things about you know, something we think is going to happen. We label that, we create an idea of future and throw it out ahead of us as if it has a substantial reality. For those of you who would like to pursue this understanding more, at the end of the course, you might like to read 
a seven-volume novel by Marcel Proust, <laughs> which is called The Remembrance of Things Past. And the whole book is a brilliant expression of the realization that the past exists in the present. If we can see it in that way, if we really see it in the moment, how we are creating these concepts, it is tremendously freeing. We can put down the burden of the past and we can put down the burden of the future because they exist only as thought in the moment. It's very light. What's interesting also to see is how this concept of time, which often weighs very heavily, conditions our present reality. Now you're doing the walking meditation. You start off at the beginning of the hour and very attentive. And then the thought comes, a whole hour to go. <laughs> I'll never make it. Or two more months of this retreat. We create in our minds this concept of time And that concept conditions the present experience, and we feel tired. You know? <laughs> we can barely make the next lifting. <laughs> or it can be just the opposite. We can condition ourselves the other way. You know, we might think, oh, the time is so short, I'll never become fully enlightened in just two months. I need more time. And we get anxious. Right? because of our expectations or wantings. Again, it just comes because we have created a certain concept. And then that concept of time conditions, actually, it has an influence on how we're experiencing things. So we want to see that, so that we can free our minds from that. The concept of time also conditions social interactions, which not so much happening here. <laughs> but I read a, a very uh, story illustrating this in the magazine Psychology Today. So it was talking about the concept of time. I was talking about a visit that Prince Charles and Princess Diana paid uh, on the king of Morocco. And they were visiting, you know, the palace in Morocco. And they were kept waiting for 15 minutes. And they got very upset by this. They felt that this was not proper. And so after the meeting finally took place and there were some reper repercussions, when they told the Moroccan kind of protocol staff, you know, about this, and they didn't feel this was very proper to be kept waiting for 15 minutes, the Moroccans couldn't understand it at all, because they said, the king cannot be late. <laughs> late is not a concept. 
that applies to the king of Morocco. <laughs> it's, it's actually quite a nice meditative idea. <laughs> Always on time. Understanding how time is created as a concept has some very important implications for our meditation practice. It's said that there are six dangers to concentration, dangers or hindrances in the development of concentration. The first two of which are thinking about things past, dwelling in the past, getting lost in thoughts about the past, and the second is thinking about dwelling in, getting lost in thoughts about the future. This very common tendency of mind, tremendous hindrance to the development of strong, powerful concentration. And the reason our minds are so conditioned in this way is because we have given this tremendous reality to this idea of past and future. So really to see it, to see it as a concept, to see it as simply being a thought in the present moment. It's no more than that. There's another concept that exerts a lot of influence in our lives, in the world, and that is the concept of ownership. We have the idea that we own things. You know, we may own possessions, we have certain attitudes about people, my husband, my wife, my children. There's a certain quality of possessiveness that often comes about. like to invite you, as a special treat, to think for about 15 seconds about what ownership could possibly mean. What does this concept of ownership mean in, in some really significant way? What does it mean to own a piece of land? You can stand on it, you can dig in it, you can put a fence around it. But what is the nature of that relationship of ownership? And it's quite pervasive. Now you think here it doesn't play much of a role. Just imagine you're coming into the hall and finding somebody sitting in your seat. <laughs> it's happened and it is very traumatic. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> because this concept of, you know, of ownership, of possessiveness is very strong in us. And in the most subtle way, in the deepest way, we have this sense of ownership of this mind and body, my mind and my body. 
the Buddha was very explicit. In the teaching, he said, we cannot be said to own even this mind or body, much less anything else. Okay, thoughts stop. Do we have that power? If we owned it, if it was actually ours, we would have it. Knees stop hurting. Doesn't work like that. It's following its own laws. Doesn't belong to anybody. Concepts of time, concepts of ownership, concepts of self-image. This is a big one in our lives, on retreat, outside in the world. We have different images that we've created of ourselves, of other people, and we get locked into these images. On retreat, it very often translates into the image of good yogi and bad yogi, whether it's about oneself or about other people. I had this come up very strongly during the retreat when Upandita Sayada was teaching here. So we had been sitting for about a week or two, and then I saw all the people who were really practicing diligently, all the good yogis, all of a sudden, one by one, I saw them with these little notebooks. And they were writing down. I had no idea what they were writing in their notebooks. I thought, oh, when the practice gets good, Sayadaw gives them the special instruction to write in the notebooks. (laughs) And I can't wait till I get to be a good yogi. But then another week or two went by, and I saw these people who didn't seem to be such good yogis, you know, wandering around, they seemed to be spacing out a lot. And they had their little notebooks. I still had no idea what people were doing with them. And I thought, oh, I'm such a good yogi that Sayadaw thinks I don't need a notebook. (laughs) And that's why he's not giving it to me. I didn't find out till after the course, you know, what everybody was keeping these notebooks for. And in the meantime, my mind had gone through all these trips about, I'm a good yogi, I'm a bad yogi, you know, all these comments on other people. It's all just self-images, you know, constructed out of our thoughts. It's very helpful to stay attentive to that, so that we don't become imprisoned by those concepts by those ideas. The most deeply conditioned concept, the one that is at the root of all the others and is at the central core of what our practice is about, is the concept of self, of I. We have this strongly conditioned viewpoint that there is an I, a me, a mine, to whom all experience is happening. My thought, my feelings, I'm hearing, I'm seeing, everything refers back to an I. And it's this concept of self, this concept of I, 
which is at the root of all the suffering in our lives. Now, if you take a burning torch and you whirl it around very quickly, what happens? There's the appearance of a circle, and a circle of fire, and it seems like the circle of fire has a certain reality to it. But actually that circle that we see so vividly and so clearly, and so much of what our common sense will agree upon, as being actually there, there's no circle there. There's no circle of fire. It's happening because of very rapid movement, so rapid that we don't see it. And so we get fooled into an appearance, into an illusion. One of my favorite examples, which many of you have heard many times, is the old Big Dipper in the sky. And we go up, we go outside and we look up and we see this constellation of stars and there's a Big Dipper. And we're all so familiar with it. But this is the moment of great truth. There really isn't any Big Dipper up there. <laughs> There's no Santa Claus. There's no Big Dipper. What actually is there are points of light in the sky. We've arranged these points of light into a certain concept, into a certain pattern. We give it a certain name, Big Dipper. What's so amazing is that it is very difficult to go outside and look up at the sky and not to see the Big Dipper. <laughs> Try it, you know, on a clear night. Very difficult not to see it because we have been so conditioned to separate out those particular points of light in a certain way, in a certain pattern. But there are no divisions up there in the sky. If it's so difficult not to see the Big Dipper, you can imagine how difficult it is not to see the sense of self. But it's the same kind of experience. What actually is going on is a composite of many, many different kinds of experiences changing all the time. Because we don't see the composite nature and we don't see the rapidity of change, we put it all together and there's an appearance of a person, of a being, of a self, of an I, and our lives revolve around the delusion of this basic identification with this concept of self. And so our lives become one of misunderstanding. We do not see the true nature of things because of attachment and identification with this concept of self. These are some of the examples of how powerful concepts, how powerful a role concepts play in our lives. Concepts of time, of ownership, of self-image, of self, and many, many more. There's a teaching by Kalu Rinpoche, it's an 
great Tibetan meditation master, he said, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality and we are that reality. And we understand this, we see that we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. That is all. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. We live in the world of concept. There is a reality and we are that reality. When we understand this, we see we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. That is all. To come to this understanding of being nothing and being everything, that is the understanding of anatta, of selflessness. What's necessary is for us to drop from the level of concept to the level of direct experience. And the Buddha expressed in a very clear way, the actual realities of experience that we can touch directly, that we can intuit directly for ourselves. The first of these is the reality of the material elements. It's been described in different ways, the elements of earth, air, fire, water, or the different sensations that we feel. And you can see the drop from the level of concept to the level of direct experience. When we begin our practice, we might be sitting and we have the experience, my back hurts. Back hurts is a concept. We look a little more closely, we see, oh, what back hurts means is that there are certain sensations happening. Maybe there's tension, maybe there's pressure, maybe there's burning. Okay, so already we've dropped to the level of experience. We can go even further. Because there still may be the illusion of continuity there. My back back hurts to this tension or pressure. Maybe we think that pressure or tension lasts for the entire hour. If you go even deeper and further, you see that within that tension or pressure, there's constant movement, constant change. Particular points of sensation within that whole, within that whole area. For those of you who have had a hard time expressing precisely what these sensations are, and it's difficult. It's very difficult to make this transition. You know, is it pressure? Is it tightness? Is it burning? Fortunately, Good Housekeeping Magazine has come to the rescue <laughs> in a little article called, What Does Your Pain Feel Like? <laughs> Flickering, quivering, Pulsing, throbbing, beating, pounding, flashing, shooting, pricking, 
Drilling, stabbing, sharp, cutting, lacerating, pinching, pressing, gnawing, cramping, crushing, tugging, pulling, wrenching, hot, burning, scalding, searing. Goes on and on. <laughs> and then it says, rate your pain. <laughs> Mild, discomforting, distressing, horrible, and excruciating. <laughs> You never know where the Dharma is to be found. <laughs> when we look carefully, when we really bring our mindfulness and our attention to the body, we break through that solidity of continuity and the solidity of combination. We see that it's constantly changing and that it's many different elements. Many different sensations. And so we begin to get an understanding of the selflessness. It's no longer some solid mess that we identify with as being I. So the material elements. Another reality that we can experience directly is that of consciousness. And consciousness means the knowing faculty, that which knows all the objects. The sight and sound and smell and taste and touch, sensations and thoughts. And that faculty which knows these objects is consciousness. What happens, though, is even when we begin to observe the changing nature of the material elements, still we can identify very much with consciousness as being who we are, because we don't see yet the changing momentary nature of knowing. We think there is one observer, one witness, who knows this whole range of experience. What happens through the development of a very careful momentary awareness is that we see that consciousness itself is arising and vanishing with each new object. There's the knowing of rising, different than the knowing of falling, different than the knowing of hearing, different than the knowing of seeing. Consciousness itself is a process of change. And we can observe this if we're very careful in our noting in each moment. What is happening in each moment? There's the object and the knowing of it. The next moment, there's the object and the knowing of it. Next moment, next moment. Until our mind sees that change of consciousness so clearly. That's a very powerful freeing, because we're no longer identified with the observer, no longer identified with the witness as being self, as being I. There's the material elements, there's consciousness. The third group of experience which we can touch directly in our practice and play such a critical role in coming to a place of freedom 
is something called mental factors or mental qualities. And these are all the different factors of mind which arise in different combinations with each moment of consciousness. It's like in a moment of hearing. There's the sound, which is material, the air, vibration of the air against the ear. There's consciousness, which is the knowing of it. And then all those qualities of mind which condition or color how the knowing is relating to the object. Is it with greed? Is it with aversion? Is it with openness? Is it with mindfulness? Each one of these are factors of mind. To see it in this way helps us not to claim possession of all the various mind states and moods and emotions that arise in the day. Greed arises, desire arises. If we understand it as simply a factor arising in a particular moment, coloring that moment and passing away, then we no longer identify it, we no longer condemn it. We say, oh, there's greed. Not I, not mine, not self. It's just a factor of mind arising and vanishing. Or anger arises. Instead of claiming it as being I or mine or self, we understand that it is simply an impersonal factor of mind. It's there in the moment. It colors, it does condition our experience, it condemns but it doesn't belong to anybody. It arises out of conditions, passes away. Being aware of these predominant mental factors are perhaps one of the most difficult aspects of our practice. You know, watching the various moods or feelings or states of mind that arise. Because they're not so tangible. You know, the, the breath and bodily sensations are very noticeable. And even thoughts have a definite beginning, middle and end. And even if we miss them very often, there's a certain clarity to them. With these mind states and emotions, much more difficult. We don't see the moment it arises doesn't have that kind of sharp clarity, the edges of it. It sort of wafts in and colors the mind. It's like colored space. Very difficult to get a handle on. And so we get involved and we get identified. To begin to bring into the practice the awareness of these mental factors, So we see, yes, that's greed, that's anger, that's that's loving-kindness, that's mindfulness. All of these, mindfulness, effort, wisdom, generosity, all all are mental factors, not I, not self, not belonging to anybody. There's a, particular, there's a particular caution that's necessary because even when we begin to be aware of these mental factors, generally we're aware of the more abrasive ones. 
You know, after some time, we get reasonably good at you know, being mindful of the anger, or the greed, or the desire. They make a strong impact. But as the practice goes on, and we begin to experience different kinds of meditative states of great calm, or silence, or emptiness, or peace, very difficult, they're very, very subtle. And often we forget to be mindful of them. But they too are just factors of mind. I had one experience in my practice. I had gone through weeks of very strong pain and discomfort and all kinds of pressure and aching and tension and really working for a long time just being with those uncomfortable sensations. And after some weeks of practice, actually it was more like months of practice, finally it's as if the mind emerged just into this wonderful sense of empty space. It was like floating in outer space. And after, after all that time of being tight and tense and pressure, it was a wonderful feeling. And it felt like, ah, oh, the practice is really getting someplace now. And I had it for one day. I went and reported it. And it lasted a second day. And I went and reported it. On the third day, I go into Upandit and he says, haven't you enjoyed this long enough? You know, there was no, no support for the delight in it. <laughs> Because as wonderful as it felt, and as aware as it felt, when I really felt like, oh, I'm really, I'm really paying attention, and the mind is so, so present in this silence and emptiness and peace. But there was this very subtle identification or attachment to that. There wasn't the seeing of that as simply another mental factor. Very necessary to note all of these different states of mind, whether they're the more obvious, unpleasant ones or the very subtle, pleasant ones. Because the whole path of practice is leading onward to the next reality. There's the material elements, there's consciousness, these mental factors. And the last of the realities, which can be open to, is that of Nibbāna, or the unconditioned, which is beyond this whole process of conditioned, conditioning, beyond the mind, beyond the body. So as long as there is knowing, as long as there is knowing of anything, even the knowing of nothing, it's necessary to keep the mindfulness very active. Because it's through that power of mindfulness, that is non-identification, that the mind opens to the unconditioned reality. And what is so beautiful about the practice is that it's not by magic, and it's not by chance, that what the Buddha taught and what people have experienced over these thousands of years is that the path to it is 
no more than simply being mindful in each moment. We're mindful and we're mindful and we're mindful and we're mindful. That is the path which leads the mind to this opening. The experience of the unconditioned is the putting down of the burden. Now, one of the phrases that uh, we read in the suttas and discourses of the various people who have gotten, gotten enlightened, the, the refrain that's used is, done is what had to be done. Just imagine how nice it would be to be able to say that or think it. Done is what had to be done. Our practice is to free ourselves in each moment from identification, to see the selflessness, the emptiness of self in each moment, and to come to the realization of the highest peace, the highest understanding. And that's what our practice is about. going from the realm of concept, of conditioned ideas, to the truth, to the actuality of each moment's experience. Let's sit for a few moments. I think the reason that he asked, wasn't I tired of the peace and the bliss of it, was that he saw quite accurately, in a way that I didn't see, that actually there was an identification with that state and an attachment to that state. And what was so interesting for me was the particular, particular deceptive power of it was that it felt as if the state itself was onward leading. And so I felt actually the practice was, oh, now it's really going good. And I wasn't seeing that very subtle identification with it which was actually halting the unfolding. But you were noting it. <laughs> no, I was not noting it. <laughs> yes. And that's what his, I mean, that's what the whole teaching was at that. Even those very subtle and refined states really but must be carefully made the object of mindfulness. Because the practice is to lead beyond that also.
cohesion and continuity and combination. I don't know if it's really important to dwell over that because I wasn't precise enough to clearly distinguish the two of them. Uh, I get, and I thought you might even sharpen it up because I should not worry about it. Anymore. The question was about um, the difference between the solidity of continuity and the solidity of combination. Um, of continuity means seeing with greater, with greater refinement the continual arising and passing of phenomena. I mean, for an example, it's, it's easy to see with a movement or with a sound when there's just an impression of the experience, it may seem like a single thing. But when we, li- when we listen very carefully or feel the movement very carefully, we see that these sensations are arising and vanishing right, throughout the entire process of hearing or the entire process of moving. And so it's to, s- to see that actually there's a discontinuity moment after moment. The solidity of combination means that we begin to see not only that things are arising and passing, but that what we took to be one solid event or experience, for example, like the body or a part of the body, is actually comprised of many different things. There's all the different sensations. Yeah. There are actually two more kinds of solidity, which I didn't mention. Um. <laughs> 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 I thought I would <laughs> keep it simple. What were the other dangers of concentration you mentioned too? I don't know if I remember all of them offhand. One was dwelling in past, thinking about future, uh, discouragement in practice, uh, expectation in practice, uh, excitement, right, when something something nice happens and the mind gets all excited, all of those are dangers to concentration. There might be one more that I forgot. Well, sometimes it's helpful. I mean, it's like the hindrances. If certain things are singled out as being particularly worthy of watching, sometimes it helps to support our mindfulness of them. So, for example, if if there's an understanding that dwelling in the past actually is hindering, or hindering the development of strong concentration, knowing that can be a reinforcement for not indulging those thoughts. Now, we'll still get lost, of course, from time to time, but it's just another help to... Oh yeah, that, that's not helpful to get lost in, in the past or to think a lot about the future. And it just gives a greater strength to staying just in the moment. Just the whole 
the whole attitude or, or energy of discouragement, which, which comes to everybody from time to time, uh, that can also be like a spiral downward, and we just get more and more uh, discursive in the mind. One of the interesting um, relationships to discover is the relationship between discouragement and lowering of effort. Discouragement doesn't actually come from difficulty, because the mind can be very inspired, even in times of great difficulty. The discouragement comes when our effort factor gets low. And so when you understand that, and then the mind is feeling discouraged, instead of thinking that the cause of that may be whatever difficulties are there, which is not the case, it's the understanding, oh, if somehow I arouse a more totally uh, full effort, even with those difficulties, you will see that the discouragement disappears. So that's another kind of interesting understanding. Okay. It has to do... Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm smiling just because I spent countless, countless hours sort of discussing this question of free will and determinism when you know, I was studying philosophy at school. It was the compelling question in my mind. comes down to understanding that things can be conditioned without being determined. There are conditions for things arising, but things are not predetermined. And just for an example, one, one example of that. is that every action we do, has a, every volitional action, has a certain karmic result. But that karmic, and that karmic result is not predetermined. The result itself will be conditioned not only by the action, but by the whole uh, by the whole course of experience following the action. And so even though there is an effect which is conditioned, there is not a predetermination of what the effect will be. And so it's an ongoing unfolding. Seeing that 
there are causes behind what happens, but it's not a it's not a fixed or predetermined process. Um, I think I'd like to leave it there for now. <laughs> No, incorrect. Choice is itself another mental factor. And so there is the function of choice in the mind. And then there's the function of will in the mind. And there's the function of decision in the mind. So all of those elements are there. The selflessness means that these factors are not referring back to any kind of permanent being. So there's no one in here who is making the choice. Rather, certain conditions are there and a choice arises, or a decision arises. It's a functioning of a particular factor of mind. One image, I don't know whether this will help or not, but one image which has come to mind. Often we view things as referring back to the sense of I, and the thoughts and the decisions and the feelings and the emotions. We have this sense of them all referring back to a point, which is who I am. The understanding of anatta and the understanding of, of selflessness that arise in meditation is that instead of the understanding that all of these experiences refer back to someone, they are all happening just as they are like this rather than like this. There's no referent. And so everything, in a very fundamental way, remains exactly the same. Thoughts arise, and decisions arise, and choices arise. But instead of adding to each of those elements the concept of self, the concept of I, we see them for just what they are, an arising of particular mental phenomena. So it's, it's viewing things like this, rather than like this. This, <laughs> this understanding of anatta or selflessness is one of the most subtle aspects of the teaching. And so, if there's difficulty in understanding it or grasping it fully, that's totally fine. It's very difficult. It takes hearing it a lot and through your own practice coming to a slow opening you know, to it. Uh, so what I'd suggest is just to let it, to let it sit like a seed. Just the seed of selflessness. The practice itself will nurture it. 
you know, the understanding will grow. But it's a seed worth nurturing. I can't remember whether I mentioned to you or not that little saying of the Sri Lankan monk, no self, no problem. (laughs) So it's worth nurturing, this seed of understanding. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.